It's great to see you. Great to be together. My heart is full. Um, in fact, I'm feeling a little emotional. I'm not. Well, I do know why. This morning, as I was praying and um, just kind of going over my notes, which I do obviously in mornings when I'm teaching. It's funny how the Lord will drop so many thoughts into my heart and in my mind. Um, and I'm, most of the time, I don't remember them as I stand up here. And I think, gosh, I wish I could, hope I can remember that. <clears throat> so that's a good one. I'm just going to preach to you today, teach to you today. We're continuing in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to be looking at chapter 2 today. I was actually really excited when Matt... Uh, said that we were going to be studying the book of Hebrews, going through Hebrews on Sunday mornings um, for a number of reasons. Number one, I just, I love the book. Um, secondly, I truly believe that Hebrews is going to be a book that the church will anchor itself in in the last days. I believe Hebrews is a last days book. Of course, all of the Word of God is. I'm not saying that it isn't. Um, but I think there's a revelation, a truth in the book, or a number of truths in the book of Hebrews that we are going to find are going to be absolutely crucial to our lives in the days that will be the days that are the close of this age. Whether we are alive in them or not, only God knows. Um, but I believe that the church that is alive will be, and I'm prophesying this to the generations to come, will find themselves anchoring themselves increasingly in the truths of this amazing, amazing letter. We don't know who wrote it. Um, scholars have never been able to agree, and it isn't important. We'll see in a moment why it's not important. Um, but it's just an amazing revelation that was given to a man to write um, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pick up in chapter 2 <clears throat> this morning. I want to read verses 1 through 9, and uh, then we'll pray, and, uh, and then we'll look at the text. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, 
We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Father, this morning, more importantly than ever before, every single day is the same in this reality. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who we will come to hear later on in this book is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We turn our eyes from the world. We turn our eyes from the many words that are spoken and written. We turn our heart's attention this morning to you, We take them off of ourselves, off of our own needs, our own desires, our own feelings even, though you know them all and you care for them all. But we fix our heart and our attention and our devotion upon you, Lord Jesus. Our hearts are filled today, Lord, with thankfulness for what you have done for us, what you continue to do for us, and for the absolute incredible anchor that you are to our lives. So, Spirit of God, today speak to us through this text of the greatness of Jesus, we pray. And we thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Do not neglect, brothers and sisters, such a great salvation. In the last 10 chapters of, uh, excuse me, the last 10 verses of chapter 1, the writer quoted from seven different Old Testament passages to emphasize this very simple point that the Son of God is superior to the angels. And as Matt spoke so well last week of, he taught, spoke to us about the themes of this book that we're going to find throughout this book that we find that Jesus is the greatest or a greater prophet, a greater priest, and a greater king than Israel ever knew or imagined. And we will find as we go through this book that the writer is going to give great prominence to the psalmist. And in fact, of the seven quotations at the end of chapter 1, 5 are taken from the psalms, and the one that we will read today from chapter 2 is also taken from the, the psalms. And very simply, the writer's thinking is this, that if his message came initially to Israel through angels, the message of the law, and it proved to be reliable and it proved to be true, and it resulted in a certain quick and just retribution, just as God said it would for disobedience, how much more, he says, should we be sure to pay careful attention to the very last words that God will ever speak or need to speak to man, which he has spoken through his son. So certainly the message that Jesus has spoken, the message that Jesus has become, is a message that we must pay very close attention to. And this is the point of what is really a warning 
in chapter one or chapter two in verses one and two. He asks a very important question in verse three. He asks, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the word neglect simply means to be careless, to make light of, to give no regard to. How shall we escape? Escape what? Escape a very true and just retribution. As all men will one day stand before the very throne of God and give an account for the life that they've lived. If they be clothed in Christ's righteousness or not. As we read these words, even the beginning of this chapter, and then as we'll go on in the book, we're going to ask ourselves more than one time. It almost sounds as though the writer is speaking to unbelievers and writing to unbelievers and not to believers. He's sounding a little bit scary, a little frightening sometimes. No, he is writing to dispersed Hebrew Christians who had been suffering terribly, suffering great persecution, even will find having taken, having their land taken from them. Anybody in the room yet had your homes taken from you because of your faith? No. These people were suffering greatly. And he's writing to them, and he's speaking these strong words to them. They were weary. They were discouraged. They were probably doubting. They were questioning maybe the validity of what they had put their faith in. And as always is true throughout church history, among those to whom the writer was writing were those who were truly regenerate followers of Christ and those who were Christian in name only. Jesus said that this would be the case. He said they'll grow up together, the weeds and the tares. They will not be able to be distinguished between, and it will not be until the judgment when that which is truly genuine will be separated from that which was not. And so it's almost as though the writer to the Hebrews, in love and out of great concern and compassion for them, knowing their weariness, knowing their vulnerability of heart, knowing that may, maybe some were even questioning, is saying to them, stay the course. Stay the course and do not neglect such a great salvation. And what we'll find in these first nine verses of chapter 2, that he goes, first of all, he warns and then he reminds. He warns them and then he reminds them what is so important. And there are five warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. There are five warnings. In chapter 2 is the warning we have of drifting away. In chapters 3 and 4 is the danger of not entering into rest. In chapters 5 and 6, there's a warning of a danger of not going on to maturity. In chapter 10 is the danger of willful sin. And in chapter 12 is the danger of indifference, even to the point of denial. And again, you might question, why would he need to write this to believers? I thought we were secure in Christ. We are. That's never questioned. 
The point is that what Peter himself made in his writing is you want to make certain of your election. You want to prove through the ongoing faith that you live by and the fact that you, as Jesus said, endure to the end, that you, in fact, have a genuine faith. And there are only two people who know for certain, God and you. But he is saying to them out of love, I want to encourage you to continue on, though you may be weary. We're going to find there are also two other very important truths in this chapter, chapter 2, that will carry through the book. The first is what I mentioned a moment ago, that Christ is the greatest prophet and the greatest king. But above all, in this book, we are going to discover, the writer will emphasize that Jesus is the greater priest. He is the great high priest. And I thought about this this week. The reason that Christ is, was, is such a great high priest, among many theological reasons, which we'll see as we get into it, the, perhaps the reason he is the greatest high priest is because he himself became the sacrifice that he offered. Unlike the other high priests who offered a sacrifice, yes, a, a lamb unblemished, Christ himself became the sacrifice. He became the lamb, and he offered himself once for all. Secondly, the writer will introduce in this book and dwell upon, and he even mentions it in this text we just read, the truth that God through Christ has inaugurated and introduced, and I'm going to use a, a buzz ter- buzzword term, a new world order. That in Christ, God has inaugurated and introduced a new world order. It began with Christ's enthronement at the right hand of God. It is a world order. It is a new creation that he reigns over from his place of exaltation. And here's the amazing truth we're going to discover in this book. is that the world that is the new world, the new creation, is the reality, and this is only the shadow. That what we experience here of our worship, what we experience here that we know to be to us, all that we can comprehend and all we can experience, he will say to us in chapter 8, he will say to us again in chapter 10, and he infers in this chapter, this is only the shadow of the reality. The real has yet to come. And I, you know, I thought about that this week. I thought, the new world, the new earth, my senses will be fully alerted. Color will be color as it's never been seen. Smell will be smell as it's never seen. Hearing you will hear what you have never heard. You will taste things you have never tasted. You will experience the reality of God's intention for creation. This is just a shadow. This is so exciting because it makes all of this present faith that much more vibrant and alive to us in anticipation that it's only a foretaste of something so much greater. So as we look at the text, 
In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And here, here is the warning. And I'll just say this as I begin. Never has there been a time in my life when so many are in danger of drifting away from the truth that they have heard and believed. And I kind of sat this week and I asked myself, why is that the case? And I think there are a lot of reasons. For some, it is because the truth that they heard was not really the truth. Or it was not fully the truth. It was a false gospel, a half gospel, a distorted gospel. And when push comes to shove, when the rubber has to meet the road, to use all those analogies, it does not prove itself to be sufficient. The, God, the promise of, of a perfect health, for example, the promise of, of, of happiness always, no matter what in this life, the promise of wealth that will be beyond measure will prove to be untrue in most people's lives at some point or other. I'm amazed at how many wealthy people commit suicide, how many successful people commit suicide. And even as a believer, your first thought is, why would they? Because their heart is empty. How many believers, sadly, choose to end their lives? I always ask myself, how could that be, Lord? I'm not going to judge anyone. But it's hard to imagine that sort of despair. And I always think something must not be right in what they have heard somehow. By now, you've probably heard this term it's come, become a kind of a common term that's been used by, by many people to describe Western Christianity as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Have you heard that term? Let's break it down for a moment. Moralistic. Be nice and do good things as a means of securing salvation. Just be a good person as a Christian. How many kids grow up in Christian homes where this is what they're taught? Moralism. Don't do this, do that. And you'll be a good little Christian boy or girl. It's moralism. There's no teeth in it. There's nothing that grips the heart. There's nothing that excites the soul. It becomes simply a legalism, a, a, a system of, of religious do's and don'ts. Therapeutic. What does that mean? Very simply this. This is about you and your happiness. This is all about you. This is for you. This is what Joel Osteen is preaching right this moment. It's your better life with his white teeth gleaming. Leading countless millions to destruction. It's a false gospel. The gospel is never intended to be therapeutic. It has the answer for the needs of men. We'll see that in a moment again. But it wasn't designed to simply make us happy. 
God didn't send his son so that you could be happy. He sent his son so that you could have life, true life. Deism. Deism is the belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator who does not intervene in the universe in any way, shape, or form. God stands off at a distance as you live your life with very little, if any, involvement in it. And so people only pray when they are in need. People who only pray when they are desperate are deists. Because they do not believe in the sovereignty nor the providence of God or the hand of God upon their lives. They believe that he is standing off at a distance and the world is spinning and their life is going on. And when they run into desperate times, then they pray, hoping that this God at a distance will hear them and intervene. Unable to see the hand of God in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of sorrow, even in grief to see the providential love of God at work and a faith that has anchored them. And that is the Christianity that too many of our young people experience today. Growing up in Christian homes with moralism, being taught that it's all about them, that it's a happy life and the best life for them and wealth for them never being taught to deny themselves, never being taught to serve, never being taught the joy of suffering for Christ, and then believing in this God that is at a distance. And so they walk away at some point from their faith and saying, I don't believe anymore. My, my answer to that would probably be, you never believed in the sense that it's necessary to anchor your life. This, re- this Greek word, the word drift away is a Greek word, a nautical word, a nautical term. He says, lest we drift away, it's a, it's a nautical term. It describes a ship that is at, at sail that has drifted off course or a ship in a harbor that has slipped its moorings. It can also be used in other contexts. It's like a, a ring slipping off like mine did in Lake Tahoe one time. It just slips off unknown to you. Something slipping your mind. You just forget it. The key to this word is that it happens almost unnoticed. The changes are usually imperceptible. You cannot even know that they're taking place usually until the consequences are seen to be too late. We've all been in the ocean and drifted. Started at one point body surfing and found ourselves a hundred yards down, or found yourself in a riptide and didn't know you were being slowly pulled out. That's the term. That's what he's saying, be careful. That doesn't happen to you in your faith. That you slowly, imperceptibly drift away from this, listen, great salvation. The remedy, the writer will tell us, is to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And here he uses another nautical term for the words pay attention. It was used to denote holding to a course 
while in a ship or dropping anchor. Yes, there is a danger, but there is also a remedy. A remedy to the potential of drifting. There is a, there is a remedy. To avoid drifting off course, you hold firm to the wheel. To avoid drifting, you drop an anchor deep that will hold you. And this is the language that he's using, and these are the, the, the images that he is using to tell a kind of a tragic story that is, goes with this. I had a good friend in high school in Santa Barbara who was one of the guys that I hung with, and he got hit in the head playing volleyball, and he was paralyzed from the waist down. And he struggled to make his way back to be able to have a life of some sort and walked again with some difficulty, but he was walking, and he ended up at one time then after going sailing with his girlfriend outside of the harbor of Santa Barbara, and uh, while he was trying to fix something on the, on the sailboat uh, in the front of the boat, he fell off with his life jacket on, and she was not able to sail, and she was not able to reach him. He just slowly drifted. They drifted away from one another, and they found his body the next day, two or three miles up the coast. If she had been able to hold a course, not to blame her in any way, but that's just an example of what this picture is, of how important it is to be able to hold sure to a course. You see, the thing is that drifting happens on its own, with no effort on our part, but staying on course is quite the opposite. It requires effort. It requires, listen, constant diligence. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, in the matter of our righteousness and justification, we can never say too often that we do nothing, can do nothing. It is entirely the work of Christ. But once we are saved, listen to this, young people. Once we are, we are saved and given this new life, then... The progressive work of sanctification does not call for passivity. And we are exhorted to activity. We receive forgiveness for our sins, not by our works, but by Christ's work alone. But when it comes to the present tense of our salvation, that which is being worked out, it is extremely active. Brothers and sisters, how active are you in your faith? In the world we're living in right now, I say to you, you must be. You cannot feed on social media and expect to stay strong in your faith. You cannot feed on what is written or what is being spoken by men especially ungodly men and their perspectives, and expect not to have your heart drift away from what is true faith in Christ. 
when you begin to feel fear, when you begin to feel like you're losing your peace, when you begin, begin to question whether or not God is really in control, know that you have begun to drift. And you must grab the wheel. You must drop the anchor again deeply into the truth of Jesus Christ. He goes on in this chapter in verses 3 and 4, and he speaks now of this salvation, how great this salvation is. The salvation is so great because we have such a great Savior. And he says in verses 3 and 4 that this salvation was declared at first by the Lord himself and attested to us by those who heard it. And I, I asked myself again this question. I said, when did God declare this? When did the Lord, what did he mean when he said it was first declared by the Lord? And of course, we can go back just simply to the life of Christ and know that Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom and he foretold his own death. But I think he speaks not only of Jesus, but I think he goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God preached it, when God declared it. He declared the gospel to Adam and he prophesied it to Satan. I think he goes all the way back to Genesis 12, 3, that Paul reminds us that God preached the gospel to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he said to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul says that in Galatians 3, reminding the Galatians of Genesis 12, 3. And regarding this gospel, this gospel that he says we should not neglect this great salvation. Paul wrote this in Galatians 1. And I think I've got an overhead for this because I want you to hear it in a translation we don't normally read. It's the New English. This is what Paul wrote in Galatians 1. He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. For I did not receive it or learn it from any human source. Instead, I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Young people, youngins, you have to have a revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't make it happen, don't worry. But you can want it. You can desire it. You can seek it. You can ask the Lord, Father, please, reveal the Son of God to me. Reveal the Son, listen to this, reveal the Son of God to me, Father, in a way that will anchor my life, no matter what happens. No matter what happens in my life, no matter what I hear, no matter what I see, no matter what I am told, may my life be anchored in such a way that I will not be shaken. And just to confirm further its origin and its import, he said that God bore witness to this by signs and wonders with various miracles and by the gifts of the Spirit distributed according to his will. It was so interesting this morning when I was awake, I began to pray and I found myself immediately praying in the Spirit, in tongues. We don't talk about tongues a lot in our church. 
because it's not something that we need to dwell on. But I want to tell you, Paul said, I would that you would all. And the reason is because when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God knows how to pray. When you don't know what to say, when you have come to the end of yourself, when you have come to the end of your thoughts, when you've come to the end of your own ability to say what you long to say, the Spirit of God who searches the deep things of God and knows my own heart and my own intent prays through me according to the will of God. This is all bearing witness to the import of this salvation. And in verses 5 through 9 now, he speaks of this author, the author of this great salvation. How great is the salvation? Brothers and sisters, how much greater is the, the author of the salvation? The salvation is great. It's only great because the author is so great. And this, this, these verses in verses 5 through 9 give us a sweeping view of history and the answer to so many questions that are out there today, even today in men's hearts. He ends chapter 1 um, with Christ exalted in the heavens, awaiting only, now awaiting the day when all of his enemies are finally placed beneath his feet. He looks ahead to that again as he speaks of the world to come. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So now he looks ahead again to the day when Christ will come and all his enemies will put beneath his feet. And so the question immediately arises probably in the minds of the, of the, the people to whom he was writing, these, these Hebrew believers. If Christ is victorious, if Christ is seated at God's right hand with all authority right now in heaven and on earth, why am I suffering? Why do we have this suffering and pain across the face of the earth? And in these five verses, verses 5 through 9, he explains the amazingly beautiful, wondrous, mysterious wisdom of God in Christ. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And then he speaks and he quotes from Psalm 8. And I love what he says here. He says in verse 6, it's been testified somewhere. You see, he didn't care who wrote it. Because to him, and I love this, the whole of the Old Testament is the voice of God. It didn't matter if it was Isaiah or David or whomever it might have been, Moses, who wrote this. It was, it was God. It was God's word. It was God who said this. Somewhere it has been written by someone, and this is what was said that the high place of man and God's creation is such, and he quotes from Psalm 8, that this speaks, Psalm 8 speaks of the majesty of God, and there's this contrast in Psalm 8 between God's majesty and man's humility, yet with glory and honor. He speaks of man's high place in God's creation and the authority that God has given man to care for and tend to and rule with God's heart over creation. And he quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And we see that glory and honor of man almost overwhelms the psalmist in Psalm 8. He says he's created just a little lower than the angels. This is an interesting 
reality in God's creation. Angels are said by the psalmist to be a little bit higher than man in the created order, not in terms of import, but probably in terms of ability because they can interact with both the spirit and the physical dimension. But we know that from the end of chapter 1, angels really exist for man. They're ministers of salvation. They're in this room today, with us today, tending to, caring for, protecting, and encouraging that we might receive greater understanding of this great salvation. And yet man is just a little lower because man is limited in this life to this existence in this realm. But we are crowned, he says, as man with glory and honor. Can I say this to you? Please hear my heart in this. Do I have to stand in front of you and tell you that racism is evil? Do I? No. Do I have to tell you that it is sin to be racist? Do I have to tell you that it's a sin to be a murderer? Why? Why don't I have to tell you that? Because you know it. Because you know in your heart, you know. The reason is, is because we know that all men have been created as image bearers in the image of God with glory and honor. Now, I can say that all the while knowing that there is injustice and oppression that is evil in the world. And I can recognize that and say that, that both, both those things can be simultaneously true. But it's ridiculous to me that it seems as though men today are having to say to their churches that racism is evil, as though we question whether or not it is. Men created in the image of God all have been created with glory and honor. Whether they are rich or poor, black or white, or any other color, educated or uneducated, Whatever their lot in life, all created with glory and honor and therefore infinitely valuable. And wherever we see injustice and oppression, we speak to it. And wherever we see favoritism, we speak to it. We don't hold any man higher or lower than any other. We are all the same. That's the gospel. Now, the author, and I'm going to have to kind of speed up here. The author, now the writer to the Hebrews, reading Psalm 8, this text. Listen to this. Now, listen, this is very important. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies these words in Psalm 8, not to the first Adam, but to the last Adam. Christ. He reads these words written in Psalm 8, and he reads them through the lenses now of the New Testament revelation, knowing that the writer to the, the psalmist in Psalm 8 was speaking of, unbeknownst to him, speaking of Christ. The head of the new creation and the ruler of the world to come. 
The term son of man in Psalm 8 reminds us of Daniel 7.13, when Daniel speaks of one, listen, like a son of man. And he describes it in this way, who receives from the ancient of days, this is Daniel's words, an everlasting dominion which, which shall not pass away. And so we realize that it is the Lord Jesus of whom the writer to the Hebrews is speaking when he quotes Psalm 8. If Adam was given authority and responsibility for the first creation, he blew it. But Christ has come as the last Adam, the prototype of the new creation, the new man, if you would, the first of a new humanity, the first of his kind, the firstborn, Paul says, from the dead. And this is what's interesting. Now he applies this truth spoken of by the psalmist. He says in verse 7 of chapter 2, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And now listen, this is where you bend your knee. Now we enter into the deep mystery of the incarnation. Now we begin to touch the incredible wisdom of God, eternal wisdom and eternal love. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. But it's not just the glorious fact, listen, that God would become a man, but it's the reason why he would become a man that the reader, the writer to the Hebrews dwells upon. It isn't just that he would become a man. As amazing as that is and as beautiful as that is, it's why he would become a man. Such humility for a little while to become even lower. Himself and the angels, the eternal God, the Son of God. But not only to become a little lower than the angels, he became a man who was a servant. He became a man, can I say this, who was a slave. And he proved it again and again and again that he had not come to be related to as God, but he had come to wash feet. He had come to serve. And not just to become a slave, but we know to die, ultimately, a criminal's death. And not just to die any death, but to die the worst of all deaths, to die, to die on a, a suffering and ter- terrible death on a cross naked. And the worst way a man could be, shame, he bore for you and for me. Paul says this in Philippians 2, you know this well. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him after Paul records his descent from heaven through lower each step down, one more, one more, one more, a man, a servant, dying as a criminal and dying on a cross. He records this, he now records his exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As the true representative of humanity, Christ is said by the writer to the Hebrews to be, to be fulfilling the language of the psalmist and therefore the declared purposes of God when he brought the human race into being. Jesus is fulfilling the declared purposes of God for the human race in this text. Do not neglect such a great salvation, he says. And notice the contrast. Look at Psalm, in Psalm 8, verse 6, I won't have you turn to it. We don't have time. Speaking of man, he says, regarding man's authority he, on the earth, he says he's put everything, God's put everything in subjection under his feet on the earth. But regarding the Son of Man, the Son of God, he says, look what he says in verse 8, the end of verse 8. He says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I've read Hebrews in the past, this chapter, I thought, is he talking about man or is he talking about Jesus? He's talking about Jesus. He says, he put, he left nothing outside his control. In putting everything in subjection to him, the Father left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And this, this is the rub, isn't it? This is the rub. This is the problem. We don't see everything yet in subjection to him. We are living in between the times of his comings. We are living in what is known biblically as the church age. When we live on an earth that is a fallen earth, yet already redeemed. Just not yet realized fully. We have been redeemed, yet we have not realized fully yet our redemption because we live in these fallen bodies. Yet it is still true. Listen to me. Everything is under the subjection to Christ right now. Just not yet completed and fully realized. It's completed in a sense that it's done. It's not fully realized yet. And that's the problem. That's the answer to why, why is a good God allow suffering? That's the answer. If God is good, why, is, why do kids die of starvation? That's the answer. He has done what needed to be done. He paid the price. He died a death that only a man could die. It had to be a sinless man. He's done it. He's lowered himself. He took on great humility. He, he emptied himself of everything to pay a price that couldn't be paid by anyone else, and he's done it. But it's just not yet fully realized. And it will not be until he returns, and then it will be. And your senses will explode. They will explode at the reality of it. Here's the answer to both man's problem and to the problem of history. He is the great 
the last and the only hope of a dying race. In him is the fulfillment not only of man's promised destiny, but of God's promised plan. History has become his story. Jesus is the new Adam of the new creation. What Adam has lost, had lost, he has regained. And all who are found in him through faith will partake fully one day of this new humanity. Humanity's reclaimed glory and honor and dominion as it was intended to be. So as I close, just a couple of quick thoughts. What have we learned from this text? First of all, brothers and sisters, anchor yourselves lest you drift. Anchor yourselves lest you drift. Pay careful, young people, pay careful attention to what you have heard today. Pay careful attention to it lest you drift. We have learned that Jesus is the perfect man fulfilling God's purposes for mankind. What a great salvation because it was a great Savior. He has now become the beginning. We've taught this again and again. We cannot say it too many times. The beginning of a new humanity. The beginning of God's new creation. And this is important. This is an important application. It was through humility that Jesus was glorified and exalted now victoriously, so it is with us. It is through humility. It is through service. It is through denial of self. It is through following Christ unto the end, even, even unto death, if necessary, that we will be glorified and therefore triumph in that day. And it is the Lord Jesus, no matter what you see going on around you, and no matter what you hear, from anyone, even well-meaning friends. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who sets the course of human history. And you can be certain of that. And your faith can be anchored in that truth. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please.